This is Cosmic Coffee Time, the place where we take a look at what's happening somewhere in the universe in about the time it takes to have a coffee. It's cosmology in a cup. I'm Andrew Prestige, and join me for another special episode. In 1978, NASA changed the rules around who could be selected as an astronaut. Civilian engineers, doctors, and scientists could be selected to fly on the brand new space shuttle. Meredith Bagby joins us to talk about this group, whose social backgrounds were as diverse as their professions. There was triumph and there was tragedy. Meredith's new book is The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. And she joined me from Los Angeles. Meredith Bagby, congratulations on The New Guys and welcome to Cosmic Coffee Time. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You've got an impressive body of work here prior to this book, nonfiction writer, partner in Big Swing Productions. You've written books on politics and economics, reporter and producer for CNN, teaching fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. And now The New Guys, a story about a groundbreaking group of astronauts. What was the inspiration for the story? Um, you know, that's a great question. And um, it's actually a story that's been with me an awfully long time. Um, when I, I'm, uh, I grew up in the 80s and um, I, I'm from Florida. And um, when I was in uh, fifth grade, my uh, science teacher applied for the teacher in space program. And of course, he didn't get it, but Christy McCulloch did. But we were acutely aware of uh, the shuttle program um, through him. And, you know, when Challenger launched in 86, we were out on the field and like a lot of kids were watching that launch live um, and we saw it explode. And, you know, that story always stayed with me. And then um, as I got to be an adult, I uh, just in a conversation actually with a, a relative who used to work for NASA, I learned that 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 shuttle flight also took the lives of um four of this of of this historic class um that the class in 1978 and I hadn't heard that story before and of course this class was a class of a lot of firsts it was the first time that NASA recruited women and people of color and four of those um four of the classmates were lost on that launch and I just kind of got obsessed with this story and the more I learned the more I wanted to tell it and it's a timely story as well. Uh, we've got the Artemis program. It's going to land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon in the near future. We had Artemis one just last year, and I'm sure they got people thinking seriously about that next moon landing and maybe the origin story of diversity among NASA astronauts. And you spent time with some of the members of the new guys group when you were writing. I did. Yeah, a lot of time. <laughs> we did. I think I think we ended up doing over 100 hours of interviews. And I say we because I had um, some research assistants help me. And um, I some of them, most of them, honestly, were on Zoom. We did this during COVID. And um, but some of it was in person. And it was so fun to get to go to Houston and meet them and, and visit some of their old haunts. It was the the highlight of writing the book. And what was happening in America at that time in the 1970s that created this shift in NASA to select a diverse group like this? 
Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. It, it, it took place. I mean, women and people of color had tried to become astronauts before with no success. And the thing that was different in the seventies, honestly, was, well, in, first of all, in uh, 64, the civil rights act passed and it made it illegal for the government to discriminate against people based on sex and based on, um, you know, the color of your skin. And, um, but it wasn't until the seventies and when, when that law really took hold and began to, 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 you began to see the effects of that law and NASA came under a lot of scrutiny, uh, for not including people, uh, of diverse backgrounds in the astronaut program. And they got in trouble with Congress and Congress forced them to open the doors. Well, I was going to ask you, were, were women and minorities actively excluded from the astronaut corps before this time? Or were they overlooked for different reasons? Was the selection criteria set up for them to fail? A little bit of both, um, but certainly um, both women and people of color had been trying to knock down the doors. Uh, Jerry Cobb famously was a tremendous pilot and um, part of the Mercury, uh, the Mercury 13 program that, you know, tried to, that showed um that women could perform all of the same tasks that men could. And of course, denied entrance. She testified before Congress, um, was famously told to kind of wait, wait her turn. And so there were these instances of people trying to get in, but failing and, and not, not having the support of Congress. And quite honestly, I think a lot of people felt that it was, that we had this perception that astronauts had to be military pilots and they had to be like the right stuff, these tough guys. And, the truth was that women could and women and people of color could meet the same standards. And the shuttle also, the existence of the shuttle for the first time allowed people to travel to space that were not pilots and that were scientists and had different qualifications. Yeah, I was going to also <laughs> leading into my next yeah. question about, about there was more than just that social diversity. And it, it seemed to make sense in the early days of the space program uh, for astronauts to be test pilots exclusively uh, when space travel was about getting the spacecraft where it needed to go and getting the crew home alive. I mean, test pilots absolutely fit that requirement. Uh, but the space shuttle would be able to carry that crew of seven. And um, so not all of them needed to be hotshot pilots. Who else were they looking for? Well, yeah, the space shuttle, as you mentioned, provided a unique opportunity for a diverse people with diverse backgrounds to go to space. And, you know, as such, I think NASA began to see the shuttle as a laboratory in space. And that became the groundwork for the eventual space station that they would build. But they started to look for astronomers and engineers and even medical doctors, um, people that could do experiments in space and also would benefit from seeing stars up close and seeing comets up close. And, and so it became, you know, if it went from being, you know, as you said, test pilots to people who could actually do science in space. And going back to the beginning of the, the space program as well, you mentioned the Mercury 7 and the Mercury 13, the 13 women uh, mm -hmm. that went through the same screening progress. And you also mentioned Jerry Cobb, who at the time had more jet flight hours than John Glenn. And it seems she was breaking down the door to get into the space program around 1959. It seems she was an obvious choice to fly in space. Mm-hmm. 
Um, absolutely. I think we, as an, as a country, unfortunately we weren't ready for it. <laughs> um, and there was this notion that women should be taking care of the domestic duties of the family, as opposed to out there flying planes or, or becoming astronauts. And that was really what ended it for her, um, in Congress. Um, and, you know, um, it wasn't until a decade later that we finally started to open the doors. Uh, well, 1963, uh, the mm. Soviet Union launched Vostok 6 with Valentina Tereshkova on board, first woman in space. And at that point, NASA had already lost a round of the space race when uh, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space and the first person to orbit the Earth. And Jerry being that prime candidate, it seems that NASA really missed a golden opportunity for a victory in the space race there. Um, that's absolutely the case. Um, and, you know, it wasn't till gosh, 1984 <laughs> when, or sorry, 1983 when Sally Ride flew that we sent up our first woman. Um, and, you know, the same could be true of uh, the first person of color was also sent up by the Russians, um, Arnaldo Mendez and, um, you know, um, Guy Bluford, who was one of the new guys, uh, potentially, you know, could have beat him out, but we, <laughs> but we didn't get there. We didn't get there first. And it was a humiliation. It was a humiliation, I think, for NASA. Well, in 1973, and NASA mm-hmm. was starting to lag behind in the diversity of its workforce, which you mentioned earlier on. And I like the point you make here. The three females that NASA had sent to space by then, two were spiders and one was a monkey. That's a decade after Valentina's flight. Were NASA starting to lose their social license at that point? I mean, particularly considering the immense amounts of public money they were spending. Oh, were they losing their... Yeah, I think that they were. Um, I mean, people were looking at the social ills in the United States and saying, you know, is it worth putting a bunch of white guys on the moon or, you know, or should we be spending that money on curing our social ills? And there was a backlash, certainly against the moon landings from that perspective. And um, there was also a backlash of... Uh, you know, wanting NASA to open its doors and to become more diverse and to have a more diverse representation among its astronauts for a very long time before they actually did it. And when those doors did eventually open up, was it was NASA the kind of place where women and people of color minorities wanted to work? Mm-hmm. This is this is the interesting point. I think they did at the very beginning during their recruitment effort. They had difficulty. I mean, they they it's they went a year without really getting many, many applications um, from women and people of color, and they had to rethink how they were were recruiting. And the big um, moment where things started to change was they hired Nichelle Nichols, who of course was famous for her role on uh, Star Trek as Lieutenant Uhura. And here was an African-American woman who was, a, you know, very recognizable. And she started doing these PSAs for NASA. And all of a sudden, they got, you know, over 8,000 applications. Um, so once they changed um, their tactics, 
people were interested and, but they had to do a fair amount of lobbying and a fair amount of traveling to different universities and institutions to get those people, to get those applications on board. Ron McNair was, was one of those people who were inspired by Nichelle. Um, He was a member of the new guys class, African-American. And you introduce him as someone who grew up in the segregated South, three generations removed from slavery from your characterization of this time, it seemed that although the law of the land had changed, a lot of the social attitudes hadn't changed, including at the public library. Mm-hmm. That's right. He, when he was a young man, he wanted very much to get math books from the library. And, um, you know, like a lot of things in his neighborhood, the library was a whites only place. And he marched in and he tried to check out books and the librarian wouldn't let him and threatened him and called his mother and called the police. (laughs) And Ron stood his ground, which I think is very indicative of who the man he became um, and was able to uh, check out the books. And, you know, from that day forward that it, the library became open to people of color as well. So that's one of the, my favorite stories about Ron. Um, And it just shows, you know, his gumption and that he was not going to be stopped. It's a great story about Ron. You're right. And because he'd come from a background of cotton and tobacco harvesting to earning a PhD in physics at MIT. And well, NASA were recruiting engineers and scientists at the time to become astronauts. It was perfect for him. Mm-hmm. It was. And I think it's it's funny. I heard the story from his brother, but he said, you know, my 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 brother was very confident that he was going to get chosen. And he said, my brother was always very confident. And I suppose if you have that kind of intelligence, um, you know, sometimes you are. But, you know, I think from the get-go, he saw that ad and knew it was for him. When NASA was opening up the program to civilians, it seemed there was a real backlash from military pilots around that time. And you describe an Air Force captain who'd flown over 100 missions in Vietnam, lived those cruel realities of war. How did someone like him feel competing against the new guys? Some of them were pilots, sure, but a lot of them were from academia. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And and a lot of the, the pilots at that time were, as you say, um, had fought in Vietnam. And a lot of the scientists and academics coming in had protested Vietnam on their campuses. And so it was a real cultural difference. And I think um, Mike Mullane, I think is who you're speaking of, who wrote Writing Rockets, he writes a very colorful description of what it was like to be in opposition or be competing with these academics and and feeling like they didn't have the right stuff and they didn't have the moxie and they had never faced death before and they weren't going to be able to live up to the expectations of NASA. And of course, then the civilians prove him wrong and Mike Mullane sort of comically eats crow <laughs> in his own book. He says, you know, I I was terrible to, to some of the women and I, you know, and, um, and you know, he laments that. But, um, but I think at the time, there were plenty of um, men at NASA and especially a lot of the test pilots that did not believe that this experiment was going to work. And female applicants had trouble with some of the physical tests for exercise capacity and physical strength. How did NASA deal with that? 
Um, it's so interesting. This is a part of the book that got very controversial. So some people said they had to do these tests and other people said they do not remember having to do these tests. <laughs> and we read enough. I mean, basically where we came down on it was that they had had these tests at the beginning of the recruitment process. And they realized very quickly that the women could not do some of these tests physically. And, and so they threw them out and they said, gravity is the great equalizer. Um, I mean, these are tests like pull-ups and, um, and, and of course the women who were competing for these slots, it was a different era and they didn't have, um, you know, the same opportunities for physical education for women as they did for men. So a lot of these women, I remember Anna Fisher famously told me, she goes, I never worked out in my life. And, you know, the couple of weeks before I started running, like for the first time. <laughs> so there was a, it was just a different time for women, a different set of expectations. And I think NASA also adjusted their expectations and said, look, this is what we're dealing with now. We'll get everybody up to speed. And how did the media react to the prospect of female astronauts? I think some of the media was supportive. Uh, a lot of the media was not supportive. And a lot of them asked really sexist and comic questions, things you could never get away with today. You know, would, would there be romance in space? Um, didn't everybody think that these female recruits were good looking? Um, they would comment on the kind of clothes they were wearing or the makeup they were wearing the way their hair were, um, was worn. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing. And I think, you know, like all journalists, I mean, myself included, you're looking for a juicy story or juicy angle and sex in space <laughs> was one of those. And so they were, you know, you couldn't get away with it today, but they certainly did then. It, it does seem weird when you look at it with today's eyes. I mean, with, yeah. particularly when you consider the shuttle being a workplace, I mean, you wouldn't yeah. say that about any other workplace. No. We're talking with Meredith Bagby, author of The New Guys. In 1979, two years before the first shuttle flight, there was already talk about who would be the first American woman in space, and she'd come from this group. How competitive was it among, well, with, with the women among this group? Were they supportive of each other? Were they rivals? Or was there a bit of each? Um, I think there was a bit of each. There was this notion that, well, there was the the fact that nobody knew what they were going through except each other. And that because of that, there was bonding between the group of women for sure. Um, and in a lot of ways, there's they faced challenges nobody could understand and they had only each other to talk to about it and kind of work through it. So there were definitely friendships that were made, um, deep friendships that last to this day. But I think there was also a rivalry. They all they all understood going in that there was going to be um, history made and that one of them would do it and one of them would forever be a trivia pursuit question, they say, or, you know, they would always be in the history books and that person would win accolades and book deals and things of that like. Um, and so, yes, there was a great competition around it. And, um, you know, as a result, um, I know Kathy Sullivan had mentioned for her that a true friendship wasn't possible with the other women. And I thought that was a great loss in some ways because they were all fabulous <laughs> in their own way. And anyway, um, but but yes, a rivalry existed. And the interesting thing about the way the program ran in those days is really only one person made the decision, and that was the the head of um flight crew operations, which was George Abbey. And at the end of the day, the decision was his. And um, 
everybody wanted to make sure that um, they got on his good side and that he could see how how talented they were. And they're being trained on all the various tasks that they need to do in in space. And some tasks were seen as more flight critical than others. And there seemed to be this sense that the more flight critical the task was, the more likely they would be selected. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, it was interesting for the women because none of them were pilots, um, they, they, uh, as opposed to sort of the, the men of color, the men of color, two of the, of the men were, uh, trained, highly trained, um, pilots, test pilots. Um, and so it's potentially, they could have gone on a shuttle as, um, as a pilot, but for the women, they were always going to go as mission specialists. And so it was easy and easy and hard. In some ways you could look at the first couple of flights and say, what were the what were the first flights that were scheduled? What kind of um, skills were needed for those flights, and who's getting trained on those skills? And the big one was the remote um, the remote arm that the they called it the Canada arm. Those was made in Canada, and it was this like you know very heavy um, um, kind of like construction looking uh, arm that would come out of the payload bay and it would be able to deploy satellites and do all of these miraculous things. Anyway, so the people who got assigned to that, it was rumored, were going to be among the first to fly. And Sally Ride, who was the first American woman in space, no spoilers there. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Not giving it away. She's possibly one of the top handful of recognizable astronauts from the shuttle era. And she was obviously an incredible intellect. She was an outstanding athlete and she'd been trained on the robotic arm. She was absolutely good enough to be selected. Yeah. She was the triple threat. Um, and, you know, I think you you make a great point, which was not only she was brilliant, but she had been a tennis pro. And I think a lot of people think that that those technical skills learned at tennis, which is repeating the same action over and over again and getting really specific um, with hand-eye coordination, you know, really gave her a leg up. And um, she was, in fact, uh, chosen uh, to train on the the uh, robotic arm first and. That was an indication that she was in the lead. The other woman who was also um, trained very shortly thereafter was Judy Resnick, who was a concert level pianist and also had, you know, great hand eye coordination. And she and Sally, um, and if you look at old clips, they talk about working together up in Canada. And I think they became close over that training. And when Sally was selected, the media were up to their old tricks again before the launch, asking if she planned to become a mother after the flight. But Shuttle Commander Bob Crippen, he was a great supporter of Sally in those moments. Mm -hmm. He really was. And he was the commander on that flight. And, um, you know, he I think when the press got too much, he told them that, you know, Sally was qualified to be there like the rest of them. And um, he tried to keep things civil a lot of times when they got uncivil um, in terms of the questions that were being lobbied. You wrote that the new guys class had the first LGBTQIA plus astronaut. That was Sally. She was in a relationship with Molly Tyson when she applied to be an astronaut in the 70s. And she was in a relationship with Tam O'Shaughnessy from 1985 until Sally died in 2012. 
But in 1982, she did marry fellow astronaut Steve Hawley. I wouldn't question anybody's reason for marrying anyone else, but were there outside influences that sought to persuade Sally to marry him? Um, it's a that's a really good question. I think when we talk about outside influences, I think the biggest one, honestly, is the, the media and people's treatment of um honestly, gay people, both at work and also in the media. I remember one of, you know, one of her, her biographer, as an example, talks about, um, you know, what, what happened when Billie Jean King came out and that she lost all of her endorsements and she had to start over. And it was just really great, um, you know, challenge for Billie Jean King. And Sally, of course, this happened right before Sally's um, flight and assignment. And, you know, it's hard not to believe that made a difference in how she viewed her own sexuality and whether or not she thought she would ever have the opportunity to come out. And I think Tam also talks about later in life saying she didn't even want to come out in the, you know, towards the end of her life because she felt it would hurt NASA. So I think this stayed with her for uh, quite, you know, know, the majority of her life. I think I remember a time when I thought that Sally was the first woman in space, but Valentina had flown 20 years earlier. And when Sally launched in 1983, she wasn't even the second woman in space after Svetlana Savitsky's flight. But I'm not sure that dampened enthusiasm for Sally's first flight. What did it mean to the people of America? It's true. When you ask most Americans who the first woman in space is, they always say, I mean, for the most part, they say Sally Ride. And um, of course, you're right. That's not true. It was it was the Russians who got there first. That said, I think we felt um, uh, I think the people of America felt a great sense of pride. And, um, you know, I think I can't remember how many people came out for her launch was like three million. I know something to that effect. I know it was the third most watched launch uh, that NASA has ever had. And, you know, there was this groundswell of support and there were, you know, T-shirts and songs and drinks and (laughs) food named after her. And so they, they called it Sally Mania. And of course, um, you know, she is among the most recognizable astronauts uh, of all time. So I even have a Barbie doll. I don't have it here, but I have a Barbie doll. I have her Barbie doll somewhere. And Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, he says that the two hours on stage with the Stones is the only time he can get any peace and quiet. Um, And you describe something similar for Sally after her flight with giving a speech being the only time she was alone. That relentless attention didn't sit well with her. No, I think she was. I mean, it's it's interesting. She's a bit of a paradox um, in the sense that she was somebody who was very focused on achievement, and she didn't shy away from being in the public sphere. I mean, both on the tennis court um, with her research and also as an astronaut. I mean, she sought these things out. And, um, when they asked her if she wanted to go first, she wholeheartedly said yes. And she knew at least in theory, what that was going to mean. I think the reality of what it meant was maybe something else, which she wasn't quite prepared for. Um, and I think it hit her pretty hard. Um, and I know from talking to some of her mentors, like um, Carolyn Huntoon, who was um, uh, one of the few women in NASA's hierarchy, um, in in that, you know, from Carolyn's point of view, it really wore on her. And, um, you know, she she did have to take start taking breaks and start taking doing some self care and going to therapy and putting some boundaries around um, around all of the media asks. 
um, which she did later, later in her career. Following from the first American woman in space was Guy Bluford, who you also mentioned. He became the first African-American in space in 1983. You wrote about this time in the 80s when black culture started started to become more mainstream in America, but at the same time there was that huge disparity between black and white America in unemployment, poverty, and no change in sight. With all of that going on, how significant was Guy's flight? Mm-hmm. I think it was hugely significant um, for us as a country, <clears throat> and it was a long time coming. Um, and I think that the African-American community also felt a groundswell of pride in seeing him go up. And I think, you you know, you can't help but note, though, that um, he did not receive the same kind of media attention that Sally did. And you can only believe that that is in part due to um you know, the racism that we suffer as a country. And, um, but that said, I think, um, you know, it was a huge step forward guy had, he likes to say he had a fabulous time on his media uh, journey after that. And he became, you know, an icon, um, for his community and, and for NASA in general afterward. The space shuttle that the new guys were flying, that had been developed during the 1970s, but the shuttle was a troubled machine right from the start, possibly because of the sheer complexity of it. There were endless problems with the heat-resistant tiles. And during the press tour after Guy Bluford's flight, the engineers started pulling apart the reusable solid rocket boosters, and it seemed that Guy and the rest of the crew had a lucky escape. They did. They did. The the problem at that at that particular mission was the the nozzle uh, was on the nozzle of the booster. The solid rocket boosters were a tricky design, and and a lot of say a lot of people say troubled design um, for a lot of reasons. But anyway, this was one of those instances, and um, they came within a couple of seconds of having that ring burn through and dying. And um, you know these kinds of issues plagued the the SRBs, the solid rocket boosters up until Challenger. And surely a problem of that scale, that'd be enough to ground the shuttle fleet and get NASA to find a new supplier for the boosters. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, it would not. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I think there was a great, look, the government had spent a lot of money on this program and to stop it after the first few flights and redesign the solid rocket boosters. I mean, once they started realizing these were a problem, um, and of course we write about it a lot in the book, they also started, the the company that made them, which was Morton Thiekel, also started coming up with solutions internally and they put together a task force. And this task force came to the conclusion, you know, that it would take a couple of years and quite a lot of money to fix it. Um, but it was very possible. And in fact, that's what they did do after Challenger. Um, but at the time, there, uh, the forces you know, at, at work felt that they didn't want to take that time and they didn't want to spend that money and the risk wasn't as great as all that. And so they kept flying. Um, and there were a lot of political pressures, I think, that created that decision. Around 1983, 84, the shuttle had only been in service for two or three years, but there were more problems starting to show. A flight to launch two satellites was unsuccessful when both of those satellites failed to reach the correct orbit. There was a critical launch abort for new guy Judy Resnick's first flight, 
where she was scheduled to be the first Jewish person in space. All of that with the near disaster on Guy's flight and that inherent risk of launching a crew of seven people to space. Were people starting to lose confidence in the shuttle? It's such a good question. I would say that it depends. I think in terms of the public certainly wasn't. The public was not aware in any real way of the dangers um, that a lot of these shuttle astronauts uh, were facing. And in fact, the shuttle felt that the, I mean, the the public felt that the shuttle was quite safe Um, and they were not well publicized. Um, A lot of these challenges were not, I mean, they are in the media here and there, but, but I think most people were just not aware of them. And um, in terms of the astronauts themselves, I think, a lot of the astronauts were not aware. Uh, they were never told, as an example, about the near misses um, of a lot of the the problems with the, the solid rocket boosters, um, the O rings in particular. The problems with the O rings were not well explained, or um, were not simply not told to the astronauts, so they had no way of knowing. I think some of the very highly technical astronauts that had been engineers and really understood how the shuttle worked, they kind of were onto it a little bit more than the others. But again, I think widely it was not known, the dangers that they faced. That was something that really struck me, um, that the astronauts hadn't been told about the O-ring problems. I mean, and you also wrote that um, that the astronauts understood that space flight was perilous. But to not tell them about a known risk like that, that seems unconscionable. And it got me thinking, did... Was that silence around the O-ring problem, problem, was that by accident or was that by design, like for fear that if the astronauts knew that they would refuse to fly? I mean, when we, when I spoke to people in the administration and the astronauts, they said, look, there, the O-ring was one of maybe hundreds of technical problems that might come up in these meetings. And you could always come up with a reason not to fly. If space flight is hard. We know space flight is hard. And if you stop the program for every technical problem, you'll never get to space. So that was one argument. Um, the other argument that uh, I think Sally Ride voiced in um, the subsequent Rogers Commission, which I thought was very smart, was like, look, this, was, this wasn't just any old problem. This was, they called it a criticality one problem, which is if it failed, there would be a catastrophic failure. And that's what made this, to me, that's what makes the O-ring problem a different kind of a problem than any old technical problem. And despite the shuttle's troubles, there were more firsts. Judy Resnick did become the first Jewish person in space. And one standout moment for me in the story is when Anna Fisher was offered a crew assignment. (laughs) Yes, yeah, she it was a particularly um, interesting moment because when she was offered the crew assignment, her husband was there with her. And of course, he was an astronaut too. They both were astronauts and she was in the class of 1978. He was in the class of 1980 and um, she was pregnant. She was very pregnant. And so George, you know, Anna tries to unravel why he did it that way, because normally he's like, you know, you wouldn't get a crew assignment with your spouse in the room. You would just get a crew assignment. And uh, George was trying to, she sort of thinks, you know, George was trying to figure out how to go about this because to her, to him, he was sending her into space, but he was doing so and she was pregnant and she was about to have this baby. And was he okay with it too? Was the family okay with her 
um, going. And of course, Anna piped up and she didn't wait for Bill to say anything. And she said, no, I'm going. This is this is what I signed up for. Send me in. And and of course, then she started training in the middle of her pregnancy and had had her baby, her first baby on on her way to to also going to space. The New Guys is the new book by Meredith Bagby. Meredith, Alison Onizuka, another new guy, he became the first Asian-American in space, another great leap forward. But after his flight, it seemed there was even more trouble with the solid rocket boosters. There was blow-by of that uh, of the primary O-rings, and that's not meant to happen. It could have been catastrophic. Um, that next problem with the with the solid rocket booster, surely that time that was enough to ground the fleet and find a new supplier for the boosters. It was also not enough. Um, and this one was particular. I think this flight was, to me, this flight and also Fred Gregory's subsequent flight were probably the most concerning um, at the time. So uh, Ellison's flight was at the at that time the coldest launch yet. Uh, for Florida, I think they launched, it was previously colder, but it kind of warmed up to around 50, but that was, that was the coldest they had ever launched. And when, um, um, they brought back, so solid rocket boosters are retrievable and reusable, and they had built these ships to go out and haul them back in after they separated from the orbiter and landed in the Atlantic ocean. And when they brought the, the O-ring or when they brought the um, solid rocket boosters back, um, the man on staff who worked for Morton Thicol looked at them and he saw all this soot, this black, black soot in the O-ring um, cavity and realized that there had been this blow by and he was extremely concerned. And of course he brought it to superiors and uh, the task force had already been created at that point, but he kept elevating it and making a lot of noise and, and telling people, listen, we got to pay attention to this. And nobody really paid attention to him. And he was the Cassandra they call him the Cassandra of um, of at Morton Thicol, but he really sounded the horn. But he just wasn't able to get um, the company to address the issue and take it seriously. And they flew again right after that. The pressure was building on the whole program in 1984. There were five flights, and that was going to be ramping up to 24 missions a year. NASA seemed they were pushing past the safety concerns, and I'd like to paraphrase a little section. If I may, you wrote that almost every shuttle landing damaged the landing gear. Parts were removed from a shuttle at touchdown to be fitted to another for launch. Risk acceptance waivers were being signed everywhere. It was an overworked and exhausted workforce. The schedule was being prioritized over safety. Aisle damage was still a concern. Technicians had no time to address any outstanding issues. The main engines were a ticking time bomb and the solid rocket booster O-rings were damaged on 13 of 23 flights. And you've got a quote here from Paul Dye, a flight director. We felt comfortable because nothing terrible had happened. But what we didn't realise was that the terrible thing just hadn't happened yet. We lulled ourselves into thinking that because we had gotten away with it in the past, we could get away with it again. Meredith, that's chilling. And it seems literally doomed. How does a culture get to be like that? It's um, such a good, such a good question. And unfortunately, this is sometimes what happens with the intersection of science and politics. And the politicians 
who controlled the budget at NASA wanted something that just was unreasonable. And it was very hard for people at NASA um, to um, set expectations and set realistic expectations with those politicians. And you know, politicians have these grandiose ideas of things. We're going to, you know, build, build this on Mars and we're going to build that on the moon and we're going to have a fleet this and, and, but they don't want to pay for it. And it's hard to go back to your constituents and ask them to pay for it. Um, And as a result, the budget kept getting strained for the shuttle right from the beginning. I mean, right from the beginning, I think the budget, the Nixon budget that, that, um, and the Carter budgets, that uh, helped cre- that that were the formed the basis of of the shuttle's um, origin story were too small, and um, they continued to be too small throughout the program. And but NASA wanted to survive, and NASA wanted to keep the keep this the shuttle alive because that was that was their mission at that point. And um, they there were a lot of fictions that got circulated, such as we can become a ups truck to the stars we can sell space on the sh- uh, space on the shuttle we can put up commercial satellites and earn our money back um we can do this also for the military and we can do this for foreign countries and we can be everything to everybody and the pressure just got too much um but they didn't want to lose the program and you know as challenger was happening they were trying to win you know, and keep the support of Ronald Reagan, who at the time, you know, was running for office and wanted to appease the teachers union. And for that reason, you know, some suspect put Christy McAuliffe on board in the first place. Um, They wanted to appease the military that wanted their spy satellites up at the time was the only the shuttle at some point became the only way the military could get anything into space which is kind of bonkers um, that we did that, but we did in the middle of the Cold War. And when the shuttle wasn't flying fast enough, the military got very angry and very nervous. Um, they needed those spy satellites up to, to monitor the Russians and to, 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 you know, to see what the weapons buildup was. So anyway, the shuttle had to be everything to everybody. And um, this is what happened. And of course, we can't talk about the new guys, astronaut class of 1978, without talking about the Challenger disaster. The explosion of Shuttle Challenger shortly after launch and the loss of the shuttle and all seven of its incredibly diverse and talented crew on January 28, 1986. There was a long, long chain of events that led to the Challenger disaster. It was a disaster made worse by the presence of a, of a civilian school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. How did the accident affect other members of the new guys group? You spent hours talking to some of the other members. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a catastrophic event, obviously, for the country and in particular for the class. They had spent the last decade being each other's friends and rivals and lovers, and they were incredibly bonded. And um, it was... Uh, I, you know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, Kathy Sullivan talks about, you know, the, the movie I was in suddenly stopped, <laughs> you know, and everything around me froze. And, you know, the, you, you hear a lot of, you know, words like that, that it just, they felt, everything felt frozen and stopped in time. And it was unbelievable that this thing happened to them. And then of course they didn't fly for two years after that. Um, and they had to go through a major wreath. Well, it was, 
The Rogers Commission, which investigated, obviously, the Challenger, was a big uh, moment of having to um, reckon with all of all of the, uh, I could say, mismanagement and um, the stresses that NASA faced. And then, of course, they had to rethink their management style. They had to rethink the design of the shuttle. Um, they had to rethink everything. And, um, you know, some people left. Um, and a lot of people, but a lot of people stayed and, but it was a two, a very long two year process, um, both of rebuilt mourning and then rebuilding. And the technicalities of the disaster, they've been well documented over the years, but your account adds something significant. The part that struck me most was the recovery in the month following the accident, that crew working deep underwater off the coast of Cape Canaveral. You really humanise this, and it's heartbreaking. I, I felt more sad for those astronauts and their families and their colleagues than I ever had before. And it's a part of the story that's an uncomfortable read at times. Yeah. And I get the feeling that there's more uncomfortable detail that you didn't write, and you delivered it in such a sensitive way, very respectful how you crafted that section. Thank you. I I think I rewrote that section probably sixty times. It was the last the last red pen I, that went in, and it was very difficult to know how much to share with the public and how much not to share with the public. And but I did feel that I, I spoke to one of um, my sources on that, Jim Bajan, who was an astronaut class in nineteen eighty, and he was um, there for the recovery, an eyewitness, and had not really spoken on the record before about it. And I felt like. What I owed that the telling of that story was this understanding that they had not died on, they had not been incinerated and that they actually survived um, the fall to the ocean and that NASA had neglected to put safety measures in place for potential rescue after an event like that. That was a monetary decision that was made very early on in the development process of the shuttle, but it also underlines this idea and this notion that they simply didn't have the budget that they needed to create a very, very safe craft. Um, and I felt like we needed to tell that part of the story for that reason. And was it difficult interviewing people about that recovery? Um, was it difficult for was it difficult for you? and was it difficult for them to revisit that time? I think for some people it was very difficult, um, but it was also something that they wanted to share and wanted to get off of their chest. Um, it's something obviously that stayed with them their whole lives. And so it felt in some way cathartic, I think, for some people to talk about it. Of course, the boosters were redesigned and the shuttle did return to flight just over two years later. And things were looking better for NASA through the year 2000. But 2003 was another tragic year for NASA with the loss of Columbia and another crew of seven talented astronauts. It was culture that led to the Challenger disaster 17 years earlier, and the investigation suggested that culture again was the problem with Columbia. How on earth could this happen a second time? You know, there was there were quite a few years between those two events. And I think once again, uh, NASA got very comfortable um, with their success record. And they the tile damage, of course, we saw tile damage. STS-1, the very first flight of um, the shuttle saw tile damage. And um, many um, 
uh, subsequent flights had seen tile damage, debris falling off during launch and damaging the shuttle. And it happened quite a few times along the way, again, with no catastrophic event happening. And I think that the administration at that time, they saw that debris fly off during launch and some were very, very worried about it. But the people at the top felt like this was something that was happening all the time. And it was, I think one writer called it, one researcher called it the normalization of deviance. And this idea that, well, if it hasn't, if it's, it hasn't been a problem, it won't be a problem. And of course that wasn't the case. And there were many people who along the way, scientists and engineers who are watching the launch, they realized that there was a potential for catastrophe here. And NASA chose once again, not to try to triage the problem in space um, and, you know, and not to warn those astronauts about reentry, not in any real way. And so once again, a very similar set of events unfolded. And the shuttle returned again, but by this stage, was it just too dangerous to operate? After after 2000, so after 2003, you know, there was, there were more investigations and more committees and I, you know, um, Sally Ride, obviously who had made, who, who had gained her fame on the shuttle was in some ways the person who is the architect of the end too. Um, you know, she pointed out that from the beginning, the shuttle was a complicated, um, was a complicated design. It was the most complex things machine humans had ever created. And with that complexity came a lot of danger and a lot of things that could go wrong. And potentially there were better designs to pursue at that point. And yes, that was the end. That was the end, the the beginning of the end, I should say. And just one final question for you, Meredith. It must have been amazing to talk to members of the New Guys group, Fred, Anna, Guy, Steve, Shannon, Pinky Nelson, Rhea, Brewster and Kathy and others at NASA. They've all got incredible stories to tell. But what stands out for you as a personal highlight or personal memory for you while you were writing Oh my gosh. Um, there are so many, there are so many. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, probably I will say, um, the first person I talked to was Anna Fisher and I got to meet her in person and I got to, we got to go to, um, she came out here once to Los Angeles and I went to Houston a couple of times and just meeting her in person and sitting and like eating salad and drinking iced tea, <laughs> you know, was my, was probably the, the, and, and that, I think those first meetings with her and she was so generous in terms of connecting me to the other class, uh, her other classmates, um, was really kind of such a highlight. And I'll mention one more, which was, um, I got to go to Frenchies, which was their hangout with George Abbey and drink like an endless cup of coffee for several hours. And that was awesome too. Fantastic. Meredith Bagby, it's been a real treat to talk with you. The book is The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. And it's a cracking read. We wish you all the best with it, Meredith. We'll have some links in the show notes to make sure everybody can find it. And thanks for joining us on Cosmic Coffee Time. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. Meredith's book, The New Guys, is published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins. There's a link in the show notes or go to harpercollins.com and search The New Guys. Thanks for joining me. I'm Andrew Prestige and I'll see you again soon for another Cosmic Coffee Time.